This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm super excited. I have Dr. Robert King all the way from across the pond. He's a PhD in psychology with a focus on evolutionary psychology. And he also writes a monthly column called Hive Mind in Psychology Today. How are you doing today, Rob? Hi there. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm doing very well. And I'm very uh, honored to be invited on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you because you can cover a lot of crazy topics that I feel are in the culture right now and are on the focus Mm -hmm. of Ray's mind. Now, you are an evolutionary psychologist. Can you kind of define what that is for everyone? Sure. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I am an evolutionary psychologist exactly. I, 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 my training was more sort of behavioral ecology or, or ethology. But it's, it's the, the idea that uh, we have to answer uh, uh, how questions and why questions um, and how questions are sort of the mechanism of, of how a trait works, how uh, so cognitions, emotions, those kinds of things, the nuts and bolts of things like hormones or um, or, or thoughts, depending on what level of magnification you take. And there's also why questions. Uh, why is it that the trait is as it is? What's its evolutionary history? How it got everything? Everything is as it is because it got that way. And so we want to trace the how it got that way. And usually that's some kind of process of evolution by natural selection. Uh, but they're not. It's very important to realize they're not alternatives to each other. We need to answer both types of question. Uh, in order to have a complete understanding. And I think often often things that are set up as culture wars set these things up as, as being alternatives, as if somehow evolutionary psychologists are saying, well, this is the real reason of, that something happens. And of course, it's not necessarily the real reason. It's part of the explanation. Does that make sense? Sure. So um, to get in layman's terms, essentially you're saying that traits exist for a reason. They're Yes. handed down genetically, things like that, and there must be some sort of evolutionary reason that they persist mm-hmm. or they would be bred out of the species. Yeah, I mean, well, um, that that's the sort of a first pass of it. There, there are an awful lot of things that are there um, because they're, something else has been selected for. So there's a lot of um, uh, exaps, exaptations, as they're sometimes called, or byproducts. Um, and so we're, we're, we're always sort of on the lookout for are, are there sort of direct fitness consequences or might there have been direct fitness consequences. But sometimes things exist because they're, um, they're, 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 there's, there's uh, selection pressure on something else. Classic case would be male nipples. Uh, male nipples don't seem to serve any kind of function. They don't have a complex um, neural system attached to them. They're small and vestigial. They exist because the basic body pa- uh, plan is female. And there's just there's there's not enough R&D to sort of rewire the system and, and sort of uh, just just take the the, uh, take the nipples out of males uh, so so we've got them out as well because there's strong selection on females to have them oh so they're just a bonus mm, if you like <laughs> <laughs> so i mean if you if you if you've got one of those models of cars which i don't know doesn't have the cigar lighter in it uh you still got the hole where the cigar lighter goes even though they haven't given you the cigar lighter so if you if you looked at that hole and said what did that hole in the car do well it does nothing you know it's there because other cars have the cigar lighter well our yeah, male nipples seem to be like that Okay, so it's like a template. Yeah, some people think female orgasms are like that. Um, I think they're they're very much, much mistaken. I'm work, working on a book about that very thing at the moment. Yeah, I, from what I understand, that's what got you into psychology to begin with, and your PhD. Mm. That that was what my PhD is in. Uh, that's what I'm working on in the book. Uh, I thought I had a I had I thought I had a solution. There, there's, there's this big puzzle in evolutionary theory. Uh, what do female orgasms do, if anything? And uh, there was a big fight. And there's still a big fight that's gone on. It's, it's not settled. I thought I had a partial solution to, to – I thought there were some confusions there that I, I could uh, make a contribution to. That was what my PhD was about, and my subsequent work has sort of gone off the back of that. Now, I hate to take it to a dark turn, but um, sure. lately you've uh, been discussing and um, 
I guess, been in the news or been on another podcast discussing Ooh. about uh, mass killings and spree killings and Ooh. evolutionary perspective of them. I think you wrote an article for Psychology Today. I did. Yeah, the the article. Um, now, this was a bit. It was a bit premature. The the I wrote the article because I was in the middle of getting the 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 paper was in review at the time. Normally, I write my Psychology Today blogs uh, once once a paper has been published, but because I've been discussing this with a with a couple of friends, uh, and they were they were sort of particularly interested in in the typology we discovered. They said, oh, "We'll do you know the, the papers in in review." So uh, so so get the blog post out. And I got the blog post out, and we got a bit of a shout out on Joe Rogan. So I suddenly normally my blog gets about five or ten thousand hits, and suddenly it got thirty thousand. I thought well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and asked why it, it turned out uh, Joe Rogan had, uh, had mentioned the, um, the 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 blog, so that um, that sort of bumps up your traffic. Yes. So the, so the basic idea uh, it was, uh, and I, sorry, I'll give you credit. This this was a graduate student called uh, Nadia Butler, and uh, she's she's gone off to be a forensic psychologist. She's studying in Liverpool. And uh, she created this database of uh, spree killers. And in fact, she had a worldwide database of spree killers, which um, we'd be interested to um, uh, to update things with. But we decided to concentrate on American ones for a bunch of reasons, um, mainly because the, the reporting there is better. So there's better access to data. Um, there's uh, you, you can get multiple sort of sources of information. Um, and uh, there's a there's a kind of a, you've got a free press in America, which you don't have in other countries. So, for example, it looks like there are there are spree killers across the world, but some countries um, really control the reporting of it, mm. so you're not quite sure about the data that you're getting. You know, and there's, there's also because gun uh, gun availability is uh, is more universal in America. You 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 can hit the criteria for for, for for knowing what you're measuring much more easily. So, for example, there there are, there are definitely mass attacks in China, but sometimes they don't result in very many deaths because somebody stabs lots of people. Now they seem to be doing the same kind of thing, but it, you know, it just makes the metrics much much harder to um, uh, to, to line up. So anyway, we've got this American database going back something like 70 years and something and uh, we did a, a process called latent class analysis where you, you, you put the data in and it's it's just a very useful way of being able to put lots of different types of data and you can put um, you can put in categorical data, whether something just is or isn't a particular way, uh, whether a, a trait exists or not. You can put in ordinal data, which is order in ranks, and you can put in um, 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 interval data, uh, sort of you know, the things that people are more more used to uh, those those, those yeah, you know, those kinds of numerical measurements, and it will give you underlying uh, underlying latent classes. And what we got was was two different classes of uh, of spree killer, and they they were they were different different in terms of age. So the younger ones tended to be younger, the sort of average age of about twenty. They tended to have school refusal, history of mental illness, and they often trouble with the police. And they were essentially on a road to reproductive nowhere. And the older ones who didn't have those kinds of traits typically they were also the old ones were more likely to die during the um, during the spree killing and often they they had a successful marriage but it was in the process of breaking up or it had recently broken up or they were in the process of losing their jobs so they're having their kids taken away or th- or there was some credible threat of that and these two groups were just completely different from one another is that like the going postal folks yeah well the, the older ones uh, seem to be yes so the older ones seem to be like a, it's it's much more close to the sort of the suicide by cop um uh, um, uh, conception, whereas the younger ones seem to be uh, more, more like what what we used to call amok, you know, as in running amok. Um, and this is something that used to be thought of as a culture-bound syndrome. You had these young Malay men who their status had been threatened, and they would run into a public place. Sometimes they would throw grenades. Sometimes they'd chop people up with a kris. And um, there would be quite often, quite often they would be they would be killed. But sometimes they wouldn't be killed, and sometimes they'd be captured. And they would have this sort of uh, they'd have had this episode of madness. And then when they're interviewed, they don't really know 
why they've done it. And we just thought that there was there was something interesting going on here. And um, we were in the process of um, in the process of writing up the follow up study because, of course, the implication of the first uh, the implication of this typology is that you've got the older ones are, are are desperate and committing suicide in a sort of an extended way and showing everyone else taking other people with them, whereas the the first ones are displaying more more of a sort of a, a status acquiring ability, and that implies that there is an audience out there that is that is listening to that status acquisition uh, display and we found that audience that was a, another grad student of mine came with uh, with another project because she was interested in in people who are obsessed with spree killers hybristophiles is the technical term and she, she she did a similar kind of typology which we're writing up at the moment looking at the difference between people who are sort of groupies of um, characters who've, who've carried out these kinds of killings in general but there's not much difference between most of those and people who are just you know groupies about say one direction and the ones who really are, are obsessed about the nuts and bolts of the killing uh, and they really get into the uh, into the detail of the weapons and uh, and the modes of killing and they're a much smaller group and they're quite scary um, they have found uh, sites that you can you can visit and they the two groups hate each other well which is kind of interesting too so and 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 this this correlates with what we know that that um, these kinds of killers get um, offers of, of marriage in prison is that a Bonnie and Clyde type of uh... yeah that's when they that's when they act together so I I mean I'm not I'm not suggesting we we, we, we found a group of people who would actually go off and be Myra Hindley or Bonnie or, or Rose West or these people but they're certainly exhibiting similar kinds of preferences and interests and uh, you know if, if my daughter or girlfriend was one i would be concerned yeah <laughs> do we um sometimes um, overlook them because we're so protective of women and I, i'm mm. as an example paul paul bernardo and uh, carla homoka out of canada okay i don't know if you're don't, familiar don't with the case but. um yeah he was with her and the first killing was her sister right and then together they went and killed a bunch of people mm-hmm. he uh well essentially she made a deal cut a deal with the prosecutors and mm-hmm. served you know, much, many fewer years, but after the deal was already cut and the plea bargain was there, they found mm-hmm. videos of how totally into it she really was. She kind of oh, played I... it like, oh, I'm a victim, but yeah. then not so much. Yeah, we do. We have a tough time accepting that some women can be sexually aroused by this kind of thing, but they, they exist. We've, we've had horror stories in my country. We had Myra Hindley. Uh, was one of the Moors murderers with Ian Brady. She was certainly sexually aroused by it. Um, Rose West. Um, so uh, she was uh, the, the, the Gloucester killing. She was certainly sexually aroused by it. Um, and there, there seems to be a small but persistent population of, of females who the forensic psychologists call hybristophiles uh, so from from the greek word hubris meaning sort of in, in love with people who are incredibly arrogant but of course this this goes beyond uh, mere mere sort of everyday arrogance um yeah and and that there, there, there is an audience the, the point is there's an audience for these people i have a weird question on that um mm. especially hybristophiles who like the ones or like you know want to marry charles manson or whomever's mm. in prison is this possibly because they are locked up so they can have their own little pet monster safely (laughs) that's a good question um i don't know i've got a friend who works in a prison in sweden who says uh, if you want to see some of the most beautiful swedish women come along to the prison at visiting time um and he says yeah they they will they will be there uh in visiting time um there's certainly this would be a good example between the difference between a proximate and a and an ultimate mechanism maybe it could be we we haven't really looked at this but it it could be that the 
the experience of falling in love with these kinds of people is the, is the sort of feeling, I can fix this person. I can mend him. Everyone else doesn't understand me the way I do. I don't know. It would be interesting to follow that up. I brought it up uh, because I, for some reason in my crazy small mind, I draw a parallel to these incredibly beautiful teachers who take mm-hmm. advantage of students. And okay. I feel like that's another control mechanism uh-huh. right because they're what you mean they're they're safe they're um yes you say, of course they're not safe are they because they your 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 career is is hanging by a thread uh, all you have to do is have one of these these kids um you know exchange one of your texts True. or 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 pictures and that's that's your career is, is, is sort of over with a like a summary execution so i think I, i'm not i'm not sure it feels particularly safe i think they possibly the thrill of um of doing something that's wrong might be part of it but I don't know. It's not one I've investigated, but it's an interesting thought. Okay, sorry. Now, I had a question about spree killers and mass killers, mm. serial mm. killers. Now, at one point I had read that a spree killer is someone who kills three or more people mm-hmm. within a sequence, but they may not necessarily be in the same location. And an yeah. early example of that was um, Carl, um, I'm sorry, yes, um, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann okay. Folgate. Which yeah. actually marries the two together, possibly mm-hmm. the the two concepts, and he killed mm-hmm. I think four or five people sure. in a sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you were, so we're distinguishing spree and serial killers. You mean right, right? Um, uh, versus a mass killer who's like you know the the Vegas shooter. So I, I, I'm just curious. Right. Um, yes, I mean so some of these some of these are legal distinctions, and some of them are uh, more sort of psychological distinctions. Um, Robert Resler is the guy who wrote the book on on spree killers, and his he's uh, the he's the he's the guy that the Silence of the Lambs uh, investigators are based on. In fact, I think he consulted for Silence of the Lambs, and his his book is Sexual Homicide, and and he's he's essentially he's mainly talking about men there. There are a few 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 women, but um, the, the the women serial killers tend to be the sort of the the, the, the cliche is the Black Widow type. So they're they're murdering husbands for money, or they're. I was just reading about one the other day who was supplying supplying poisons for other women to murder for money, or occasionally getting sort of nurses with uh, Munchausens by proxy. But the, the the bulk of the male serial killers, at least according to to Resler, are uh, it's, it's sexual homicide. They're, they're rapists who are either killing their victims so that their victims can't talk, or the killing is itself part of the sexual component for them. Um, okay. So that would be the the, the the serial killers. Whereas the spree killers, they they're doing it in in sort of one go. This is this is one large event. And once again, I mean you've you've got you've got mass killers, and so, we we left those out of the analysis. Not that we don't think that there might be some overlap, but just to try and keep the data as clean as possible, just as a first pass. I mean, there are clearly people who carry out mass killings for political reasons, for oh, terrorism. Yeah. Now there may be some overlap. There may be some psychological overlap. It may be that if the, the kinds of people you'd want to recruit for that have some overlaps with the kinds of psychology that we're looking at, but we'd want to sort of we'd want to we'd sort of you know you, you move in baby steps. We're not trying to explain the whole thing all in one go. So we, we deliberately left out uh, the political, the obviously political and religiously motivated ones initially. Um, but yeah, it's possible. It's possible with follow up that if you are recruiting, then then you might be able to recruit people who are like that. I I, te- I think not. I I suspect it's a little bit like the difference between when we we sort of look at the way soldiers work in battle and we think, oh, they you know those soldiers at my lane must have been psychopaths or something. And there's very little evidence that they're psychopaths. Uh, psychopaths make very bad soldiers because they don't follow orders and they don't protect each other. I mean, the, the, the more terrifying realisation is that ordinary everyday humans can be put in circumstances where they dehumanise the enemy, and at that point, you know, all, all bets are off. You know, the, you know, women and children can get bayoneted at this point, and it, it doesn't look like there's any 
any cultural race or creed that has the monopoly on that that seems to be a human universal but it's a very very scary one because we'd like to think it was just monsters who could do that it's very interesting i actually interviewed um dr james fallon who's a neurologist out of um, irvine Mm -hmm. and he discussed a little bit with me about the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath Mm -hmm. and according to him the sociopath is the really scary one that uh, he was saying that a a psychopath is someone who's born with parts of the brain essentially turned off Mm -hmm. or not receptive yeah um whereas a sociopath as he puts it at a certain point chooses Mm. to turn it off and they're kind of a monster created and so he was saying that um a mass shooter or spree killer or whatever is more of a sociopathy mm-hmm. than a um, psychopathy. He said, you know, like Ted Bundy's a psychopath, but mm-hmm. the Vegas shooter is a sociopath. Oh, okay. I, I, I see the distinction he's making. Um, yes. Yeah, so, well, t- I mean, Ted, Ted Bundy's a, a, a serial killer, of course, whereas the, the Vegas Vegas killer is a is a sociopath. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure how much the concept of choice is useful here. We 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 don't we don't normally talk of psych- psychopaths and sociopaths is um is a sort of shorthand for specific traits that we measure so we we measure a dark triad um stop stop me if i'm telling you things that are really obvious but the the, the usual metric we have is is the dark triad um and so that's uh, narcissism thinking of particularly special machiavellianism seeing other people as being tools that mm. you can manipulate um and uh, lack of empathy Okay. So that other people's pain doesn't really hurt you, and some people and, and the same the same researchers who came up with the dark triad also um, they, they they've suggested that there seems to be a, a component in some people that's uh, what they call everyday sadism. So they've they've sort of updating their model to be a tetrad, and really what we call a psychopath is someone who just scores high on on those traits. As we've got we've got people in the you know not, you don't have to go too far to find people who score high in in one or two of those traits. They're not sure. likely to be killers. It's very un, unusual that somebody is a killer. So there has to be something else that pushes them over the line into that because because killing has to be something that's that's achieving their goals. And James Fallon is a case in point. I mean, he's when he when he went to his family and he said, "Oh, I score high on all these traits." He went, "Yeah, we knew that." Yeah. <laughs> they were completely unsurprised, weren't they? Um, and then he's, was his, his grandmother said, "You know who your great great aunt was?" Um, so his, mother, his, his mother, it, 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 his mother, his mother. His mother actually is fantastic. She knew how right. to raise him, I guess, in a manner to where he was able to um, live with the condition and not even realize it. She right. had him participate in every activity, every sport, every possible thing, so he would never be bored. Okay. That's interesting. And so how does he describe it? Does he just not see other human beings as being uh, proper limits to his will in the, the way that he can't or just doesn't see why he should care about them or thinks it's just baffling that other people care about each other? What, how is it like? What's it, what's it like being him, I guess? Um, he actually is uh, more sympathetic than empathetic. He just doesn't mm-hmm. have empathy. Right. But he can logically see, oh, this is good or this is bad. And he brought up uh, actually a, a possibility of, about ne- uh, Nelson Mandela having a little bit mm-hmm. of it. Okay. And as he put it, uh, Nelson Mandela is great for his country, but bad for his family. Right. Well, that's, that's often the way, isn't it? With um, you, you see this with people like uh, some, a lot of great reformers are like this, aren't they? Uh, they they have this sort of grand plan for making the world a better place, and uh, if you if you went and asked their family about it, they they'd be going, it'd be nice if they could you know treat treat us as decently uh, as human beings. Yes, I, the, the a lot of these traits from an evolutionary point of view, so we're going well. Why isn't everybody like that? Well, because 
things there's there's a thing there's a thing called frequency dependent selection pressure mm-hmm. and there's lots of traits that are under uh that are under selection but only if they're if they're below a certain threshold so the the classic um, the classic uh, textbook case is pizarra spiders so with pizarra spiders the male is a lot smaller than the female which is quite common with spiders and uh, in order to um in order to, to mate with her he, he gives her a nuptial gift he, he catches the fly wraps it up in silk gives it to the female she unwraps she unwraps the, uh, the fly and he mates with her because if he doesn't do that she munches him yeah she just kind of because he's the same size and shape as her prey um, <laughs> there's <mate>. incentive <laughs> Right, so well, but this is the bit. You see, so 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 some of the male spiders have got quite cute, and they don't bother to go to all the trouble and expense of catching a fly first. So they just give her an empty ball of silk, and by the time she's got to the middle uh, and realise that she's been had, he's been and gone, and that and that makes uh, makes the spiders very cross. Whatever cross being cross means to a spider, and she'll just munch any other males who come her way. So what that means is that the population is kept in dynamic tension. You never get more than a third of the uh, sort of I don't know what you call them, bad boy spiders. In, a, in any given population, and it's it's kept within uh, it's kept within within um, a frequency dependent selection, and it seems likely that it'd be a more complicated story, but it looks likely that that's what's happening with with a lot of the human psychopathic traits. Is, oh my god! Uh, <laughs> if, if, as long as there aren't too many of them, then then you then then they are successful in the population. But if they if everyone was like that, uh, they'd all be takers. Yeah, if everyone was a taker, there'd be True. no givers. <laughs> um, there's a god that makes me think of um. Uh, a gad sad um talking about i don't know if it's his theory or somebody else's but he called it the sneak the sneaky effort theory oh no sneaky fucker hypothesis no that's 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 standard uh that's standard terminology in biology that's there are a lot of there's there's never just one way of being successful um and um so so i mean classic cases would be um elephant seals so it's typically the big elephant seal who gets to mate and he goes and, and gut barges all the other elephant seals that have these fights, sometimes to the death. And sometimes when they have these fights, the little ones sneak in and, uh, and mate with as many females as possible while the other guy's off having a fight. And I mean, it, get, it can get more complex with, with baboons. They'll, they'll, they'll have a bait and switch thing where, where a couple of smaller beta males will have a, a pact where one of them will, will go up to the, the dominant male and sort of goes, yeah, your mother wears army boots, run off and be chased. And his mate will go in and mate with as many of the females as possible. And then the other day, the next day, they'll reverse so you know the other one will taunt the male and his friend will go in and mate so there's there's lots of that going on in nature it's it's not it's not just it's not just with humans <laughs> oh that's fabulous and actually we have to cut this one tight and i'm hoping we can continue this discussion on the next episode sure yeah very happy to if this is the kind of, if this is the kind of thing you like to hear about and i'm more than happy to to go on absolutely <laughs> I want to go on a complete tear with this, and I want to whet the audience's appetite because this is just fabulous. Okay, cool. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. No, it's my pleasure. It's, 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 it's always fun to talk about this stuff. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. Hayes? A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing The Diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The Diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea... 
I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty, just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. fans, I'm Rachel, host of We're All Mad Here, a new podcast about the history of mental health. Do you love history? Do you love creepy stories of abandoned hospitals? How about questionable medical procedures? We're covering it all. Not only will we sneak around in old asylums, we'll talk about the patients that stayed there and what their lives were like. We're covering disorders, cures, and living life with mental illness. So come join us on We're All Mad here at allmadpod.com because the history of mental illness is insane.